following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Just to get our bearings with uh, what we're doing before we dive into Scripture this morning, we're in this series in the book of Genesis. And we've been in this series now, we've picked it up, we've been in it for a couple of weeks' time. And the way this is working is we're just uh, working our way through these early chapters in the book of Genesis. And, and really what, what we're finding in these early chapters is it's like a collection of family histories in this book. Some of the earliest families that ever lived on the earth, some of the earliest individuals that lived in the world. And we're just looking at the way that God journeyed with them and how he interacted with them and how they related to God and how they related to each other just as this whole story gets going just in the early stages as God's redemptive story gets underway. So last week, we looked at one of the weirdest passages in the whole book of Genesis. That Remember that strange genealogy in chapter 5? And then that weird story about the sons of God and the daughters of humans in chapter 6? And that was bizarre. Amazing. I think we had four people baptized on that day uh, after that passage. But that, you know, God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? That was fantastic. It was just a great Sunday last week, wasn't it, to see four people and, and two of them, uh, Lavinia and Ethan, just on the day make that decision. Amazing. Uh, so anyway, we've been in that, um, that, stra- that slightly obscure part of the book of Genesis. And then so this morning, we come out of that. We come out of one of those really strange parts of the Bible, and we come into one of the most well-known parts of the Bible. We come to the story of Noah's Ark. Yes, this is the one that you all know and love, and it's one of the most well-known and and well-loved, the most familiar, one of the most familiar stories in the whole Bible, hey? It's got to be. So that's where we're going to be, and uh, we will be there for a couple of weeks because it's quite a long story. It starts in Genesis 6, and that's where we're going to pick it up. But to set the scene for all this, I want to play a video, and this is a clip from the movie Noah that came out a few years ago with Russell Crowe being Noah. And so this is uh, just a brief little scene just to kind of get us in the zone, get us thinking, get us immersed in the story. This is the moment when the great flood breaks upon the earth. So let's watch the screen. Was that what it was really like? We don't know. Was it PG-13? Maybe. Uh, So uh, that movie, there was a group of us who went to see that a few years ago. That, That particular movie, I think, takes a lot of liberties with the story, if you remember some of the details in that movie, there's a lot. I, my understanding is that I think they drew a, a, from a lot of Jewish myths and legends that have grown up around the story of Noah's Ark with that movie. So there's a lot of things in it that weren't actually in the biblical story itself. So you kind of had to sift and sort that a little bit. But at least it gives you a little bit of a dramatic representation of maybe what that was like. But this story has got to be one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. If you've had any background in church, if you've been to Sunday school, you know this story. You've, you've heard it many times. You've colored in pictures of Noah and the animals, and you've maybe sung the song about the animals going in two by two, uh, and you've heard your Sunday school teachers tell you this story. Maybe you've seen it acted out many times. It's kind of ingrained in the childhood consciousness of every uh, child that's been in Sunday school. And I would say even among non-Christians, even if you're not a, a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would say probably most people have still at least heard of the story of Noah's Ark, would you say? At least like basic recognition of the story. I visited a friend over summer, uh, not a Christian, and went into a batch and uh, she's there with her nephews and nieces. And on the floor, the nephews and nieces were doing a puzzle of Noah's Ark on the floor. 
And so they're not a Christian family, not a religious family at all. And I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, um, here I am. I'm going to preach on this story in a couple of months, I thought at the time. And imagine if I had said to them, that story actually really happened. Like that's, that, that's actually a true story. That, that's real history. I think they would have looked at me like I was from another planet. Because in their minds, for their kids to do a puzzle of Noah's Ark would be no different to their kids doing a puzzle of Thomas the Tank Engine. That's just the same thing. This is, this is a nice children's story. It's a, it's a nice picture. But it's not true. It's not based on fact. And the minute you start trying to claim, well, this might have actually happened, uh, that is, that's weird. That's just bizarre. And, and, and honestly, just if we can have a moment of just brutal honesty here, I, I suspect even a lot of Christians really wonder about this one. You know, because we, I mean, we heard the story in Sunday school, didn't we? But then we became adults and we learned a little bit of science and we learned a little bit of geology and we learned a little bit about the world and we learned a little bit about animals and we sort of come back to the story. And do you ever wonder in your, in your quieter moments, did this really happen? You know, did, or is it just me? Did, you know, did, did, was there really an ark that big? Um, did, was there really a flood that covered the whole world? Well, did, it, did Noah really, did, was it all the animals on the ark? Did this, did this really take place? I think there's a lot of questions that, that Christians have about this and what place this story has. It, was it just that nice story that we learned in Sunday school and really we should leave it there? Or does this story continue to have uh, value and credibility uh, in our world and in the story of Scripture, and what, where does it fit into our life and where does it fit into our faith today? I think these are questions that are ongoing for a lot of people. So uh, what I want to do is, for the next couple of weeks, is look at this story. And I know for some of you this is going to be familiar material, but I would just encourage you to just try and hear it afresh. Hear it as if for the first time and try and enter into the story. We're going to look at the details of the story and what actually happened and try and just sift and sort things that, that may be there from things that may not be there. And then more broadly, try and understand what, what is this story saying to us? What does it mean? Where does it fit into the story that Genesis is telling? That's important. And then how does it speak into our lives today? And what relevance, what possible relevance does this ancient story have in our lives today? All right? You up for that? Sound good? Okay. So we're going to be in Genesis 6. I'm not going to read the whole thing because this is about three and a half chapters worth, but it really is valuable if in the next week or two, you can read this for yourself. Just read these few chapters, uh, familiarize or re-familiarize yourself with the details of the story, but I'm just going to take selected pieces of it. Let me just make a, make a quick comment here, a couple of comments first before we dive in about how as Christians, I think we should approach this particular story. So I'm going to make a couple of assumptions as we, as we go today. The first assumption I'm going to make is that as we come to the story of Noah and the flood, we are dealing with real history. Now, obviously not everybody believes that, but I think Genesis is written as a real historical document. It certainly intends to tell us real history about the world. And if you cast your mind back to last week, you can hear that in a passage, even though that genealogy in Genesis 5 was a bit strange, you think, well, part of the purpose of that surely is to tell us these were real people. There's 10 generations. They're documented there. These are people. They're real individuals. They're real families. They had real stories. They had real histories in the real world at the real time. Yes, it was thousands of years ago, but Genesis is written as history. The story that it is telling is history. And so I'm going to take it seriously as, as history. I don't think it is in the realm of just pure myth, uh, fiction, 
or fable or fairy tale. I think we are dealing with history. You might disagree, that's okay, but that's how I'm going to proceed, as it is with the rest of the book of Genesis and indeed the rest of the Bible. But having said that, before you get too excited, we also need to allow for the fact that this is history told from a certain perspective. And that is true of any history. It's always told from a certain vantage point by a certain person or group of people and for a specific purpose. And that is true of this story as well. The author is not just giving us information. He's not just saying there was a flood, there was a boat, there was Noah. It's not, just, it's not like that. He is writing, the best way to think about this story is that it is theological history. So the author is writing from God's perspective, in a sense, and to reveal God's purposes. That's the point. The ultimate question is, what, is the, what does all this show us about God and who He is and why He sent this flood and why He would bother rescuing anybody? That's the driving purpose. And so because the author is writing with a purpose in mind, it will lead him at times to emphasize some things and maybe leave some details out and focus more on this than that because he's got a purpose, he's got intention in mind. And so keep those two things in mind as we go, that we are dealing with real history, but it's theological history. That is history that reveals God's purposes, God's plans, and the fulfillment of God's promises. So there's a little framework just to, to think about as we go into the story, okay? Now, let's start off then in chapter 6. Chapter 6, we kind of get these scene-setting comments after the, all the stuff about the, the Nephilim that we looked at last week. We come to verse 5 in Genesis 6, and we, we read this, which kind of lays the groundwork for what is to come. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so you see here this, this devastating picture of just how far sin has spread and affected the human race. If you think back to that analogy, we've talked about the pebble in the lake, the pebble being thrown in the lake, the pebble being that initial act of sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, and then it ripples out and out and out to affect and contaminate everything. And so here by chapter 6, you're now seeing the, this full extent of the damage that sin has done. It's, it's rippled out to affect all of humanity, every person, every family, every clan, every generation, and every dimension of the human person. Do you see this? That it's, all, it's not just a part of us that's affected by sin. It's all of us. Look at the universal kind of language that's used in that verse. Uh, every inclination, only evil, all the time. These categoric statements that human beings are just shot through with sin. There's no part of us that's still uh, really good and redeemed, but we are enslaved to sin. Human race is enslaved to sin. Our minds are enslaved to sin. Our hearts are enslaved to sin. Our bodies are enslaved to sin. And the, these human creatures who had begun with so much promise, walking with God in the garden, have now become corrupt. They've become depraved. They've turned in on themselves and they have walked completely away from God. It's a pretty sad indictment of what has happened in the space of six chapters. But this is how far humanity has fallen. And so then God resolves to do something about this. And he says in verse 6, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. This is really one of the low points in the biblical story, isn't it? Is that you feel the weight of what is happening here. 
you've got to be careful with that statement, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. That doesn't mean that God looked at humanity and said, man, this was just a big mistake. It's not that God made a mistake in creating human beings. It's not that he's saying, man, I just completely got that one wrong, didn't I? I totally blew it. Uh, I've made a massive blunder. I've made a huge error. And uh, I just don't know what I was thinking. I just lost all judgment uh, when I did that. No, he's not, he's not saying that. The word regret, it simply means to have deep sorrow, to be deeply, deeply moved, to be grieved, to be saddened, to be troubled deeply in our spirit. That is how God felt. You've got to think of God being an emotional being. He's not this kind of just unfeeling, um, unaffected kind of God. He, he was troubled by the sin of humanity. He was grieved by what the world had become. He thought back to Adam and Eve in the garden and the intimacy that he had with them and how things were. And then he looked at the human race now, depraved, corrupt, violent, aggressive. And he was grieved by this. He was so grieved that he wondered maybe, was it really all worth it? Was this worth what was now happening? And he was incredibly saddened by what humanity had become. And so God resolves in his heart that he is going to bring this devastation on the earth, that he is going to wipe out from the face of the earth the human race that he has created. And notice at this point, the devastation is going to be absolute. There's no mention here of anyone being saved. So the first indication we get of the flood, the first indication we get of the devastation that's coming, it's going to be absolute. And there's just going to be this total annihilation and God is saying, I'm just going to wipe everything out and I'm just going to undo the last six chapters and we're going to go right back to the very beginning. I'm going to undo creation and we will start completely afresh. That's God's intention. That's God's resignation. And that's one of the lowest, darkest moments in the whole biblical story. And then you have verse 8. And this is really the turning point in the story. But, that word but is the, is the hinge on which the story pivots. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so we're introduced to Noah. Uh, who becomes the main character in the story. I don't want to say the hero of the story because he's not so much a hero, but he is certainly the main character of the story in the next few chapters that unfold. And we read a little bit more about Noah uh, at the beginning of verse, uh, verse 9 or halfway through verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I sometimes ask in my preaching course, who was the first preacher in the Bible? Who was the first preacher in the Bible? And you get these answers, you know, was it, was it Moses? Maybe it was one of the prophets. In fact, it's Noah. Uh, because in the New Testament, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. Uh, that's, that's not here in this chapter, but in the New Testament, that's how he's described. And so you get this idea, not only was Noah a righteous man himself, but he was a preacher of righteousness to other people. I think it's easy, though, to kind of idealize Noah. Sometimes we put him on a pedestal. We think of him as this amazing spiritual giant, this pillar of faith, this pillar of virtue, this incredible person almost at the level of God himself. You know. But you've got to remember, Noah was a man, human being, just like us. He was an ordinary guy. And yes, he was righteous in the sense that he followed God, he loved God, he worshipped God. But he was still a sinful, broken, fallen guy. In fact, you only need to read on a couple of chapters 
to the last half of chapter 9, where Noah gets drunk and naked in his tent, to realize, okay, this guy's maybe not all I thought that he was. Right? He's not maybe the pillar of virtue that I thought he was. He had his flaws, and they were big flaws. He had his problems, and some of them were big problems, and we'll get to that. That's going to be a fun passage to preach. Uh, but, you know, he was. He, 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 this, this indictment of humanity that the author has, it includes Noah. I mean, it's not that everyone else was wicked, but Noah, you know, was, was completely perfect. No, Noah was still a sinful person. He was affected by the curse of sin, just like everyone else. And yet, he walks with God. And he loves God and worships God and seeks to keep in step with the Lord as God enables him to. And not only that, but he obviously proclaims uh, and shares this good news with other people. He talks about God uh, to other people. He proclaims righteousness. Maybe to the people as the floodwaters started coming, maybe before that, we don't know. But he was a preacher of righteousness and he was a righteous man. But keep in mind, he was an ordinary guy, ordinary bloke. So Noah. And God then shows up to Noah and starts talking to him about what is going to happen and about what God's plans are and how God is going to wipe out uh, all the creatures of the world and he's going to destroy uh, the earth. And then he says to Noah, verse 14, So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. And so here's the first inkling in the story that this devastation is not going to be total, but God is going to save Noah. God's going to make a way for Noah and his family, we find out, to be saved from this devastation. And it's going to happen through this ark. It's going to happen through this boat, but Noah is going to have to build the boat first. And that's the big challenge. And when you look at the size of this vessel that Noah is commanded to build, it is pretty staggering stuff. And we get the dimensions in here, which is interesting. So you can actually calculate how big this boat was that God commanded him to build. And when you convert these cubits into meters, you end up with these calculations. Uh, Noah's Ark was 137 meters, approximately long, and 23 meters wide, and I think about 14, 15 meters high. So that's taking a whatever a cubit was, and most people, are uh, scholars have kind of come to an agreement on that, and then translating that into meters, and that's the size boat that you end up with. Now, when you, if you plug those dimensions into Google and look for a modern-day shipping vessel that's about the same size, that's what I did, and here's what you get. That's the closest I could find, the Maersk Involver. So this is kind of like an offshore support vessel, and it's actually quite a similar, similar dimensions, a little bit bigger than Noah's Ark, but that's kind of the same size, more or less, as Noah's Ark. I don't think Noah's Ark looked like that, but there's just in terms of dimensions, it gives you a bit of an idea. So you would kind of say, well, it's, it's kind of equivalent to a medium-sized cargo ship today, maybe a medium-sized cruise ship, maybe, not, not the biggest of them, not the smallest of them, somewhere in the middle, seems to be about where it lines up. But of course, remember, that, that, that's comparing it to a modern shipping vessel, right? So think about in the ancient world, what kind of mammoth construction this would have been. I mean, there were, there were boats around uh, back in Noah's day. Their ancient cultures have ancient stories about people doing boat building, and there were various ships. Some people lived near the ocean and they built boats, but there is nothing like this. The, the boats that people were building were just absolutely eclipsed by the size and the scale of Noah's boat, Noah's ark. This is absolutely massive 
in its day. And then you've got to remember too, this is a wooden vessel. So that's a different category altogether. We're talking about wooden ships. Now, if you look at the biggest wooden ship that's ever been constructed, what I could find is this one here, the Wyoming. Uh, at least the longest wooden ship that's ever been built. And interestingly, its length is exactly the same as the dimensions were given in the Bible for Noah's Ark, 137 meters. It's 15 meters wide. So that means that Noah's Ark is still first equal in terms of biggest wooden shipping vessels ever made in ancient history or modern history. If you take those measurements as the measurements of the ship, and there they are sitting there in the scriptures, uh, then in, throughout history, there has never been a bigger wooden shipping vessel that's been seaworthy at least, that's ever been constructed. So it starts to give you an idea of just the size of the vessel that we're actually talking about here. It was huge and particularly massive uh, by the scale of its own day. Now, someone who has tried to replicate Noah's Ark in the modern world is a guy called Ken Ham. Some of you have heard of him. He's an apologist, Christian apologist. And so he has built this full-scale replica, what he claims is a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark in Kentucky. That's, I mean, that's why not in Kentucky, right? That's the place. Uh, this actually wasn't too far from where Anna and I lived when we were in the States for a couple of years, but this, this wasn't finished yet, unfortunately, so we couldn't go and see. We were like the people that couldn't get into the Ark. It wasn't ready. So we, um, we, that's right, we, we, weren't, we weren't virtuous enough. So he's, he's built this, uh, what he claims is a two-scale, life-size replica of Noah's Ark. And, and for a ticket price, you can go and visit Noah's Ark. You can go on board. You can see the cages. And then he's kind of tried to recreate what he thinks it would have been like. And then you can have lunch at the Noah's Ark restaurant. I think they've got something like that. There, yeah. So it's an interesting kind of thing. I mean... Rumor has it he's next going to try building the Tower of Babel, which will be interesting. You know. It could have some negative consequences, I think, if you try that. So, and by the way, if that looks like it's bigger than those other vessels, it's because it is. And Ken Ham has used a different standard of measurement. He thinks the cubit is longer than most people think, which is convenient because, of course, if you have a longer cubit, you end up with a bigger arc, and if you've got a bigger arc, you can fit more animals. So that's, you know, it works. But uh, that's, that's a massive uh, scale ship, and a lot of people think it probably wasn't quite that big. But anyway, whatever you think, if you're in Kentucky, next time you can check out Noah's Ark, go on board, and uh, see what you make of that. But either way you look at it, this is a huge, huge vessel, and you know, for Noah and his three sons to construct this thing would have just been an almighty task. I mean, Ken Ham had construction crews working on this thing. They had power tools. You know, like Noah did not. They had whatever tools they could fashion out of whatever materials they could find, and they just had to get the job done. So I think you, you, you have to assume that God empowered these guys, gave them the skill, gave them the strength, gave them the stamina to be able to create and construct this feat of engineering, even though they were just complete amateurs, that just as the Spirit of God came upon others in the Old Testament for craftsmanship and various types of things, that the Spirit of God enabled Noah and his sons to complete this task and then to actually have this thing become seaworthy and uh, survive for 150 days on the open water with no rudder, by the way. It's the one thing that's not in the instructions, no rudder. So the boat is completely, literally at the mercy of God in terms of where it goes. So we have a massive ark. And then we get to the animals. 
And this is the other fun part. So God then says to Noah, by the way, I want to tell you something about the animals, um, some of the passengers that you're going to have on board this boat. He says to them in verse 19, uh, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. So Noah is to bring all of these animals on board the ark and care for them for the duration. In fact, it's even more than you think because in the next chapter, God says, I want you to bring seven pairs of some kinds of animals, seven pairs of every clean animal into the ark. So in some cases, it's not just two of a particular species, it's 14. Uh, and so you, you start adding this up. And some people have tried to work this out. How many animals are we talking about here? I mean, this is a lot of animals, isn't it? Uh, if you try to figure out like how many species, if you add up species of birds, uh, reptiles, mammals, amphibians, uh, I think you get into the 20,000s in terms of just the number of species. And that's the number of species today. So there could have been many more in Noah's day. And then, of course, you need two of each, and then you need seven pairs of some of them. So you're up into the 40,000s, maybe the 50,000s, in terms of animals that would have needed to get on the ark. This is pretty mind-boggling stuff, the sheer logistical challenge of dealing with all this. Here's um, some comments that one scholar makes on this. He says, assuming that the 21,000, so he's saying 21, so I think that's possibly quite low, but to be conservative, the 21,000 species of amphibian, reptile, bird, and mammal had to be represented on the ark. It would require around 42,000 individuals, so that's individual animals. Assuming that each of the eight people on the ark had to take care of their share of the animals, each person would have 2,637 cages to visit each day for feeding and cleaning. Other physical problems include the generation of 78,750 litres of urine per day. You don't think about that, do you? The story of Noah's Ark. What happened to all the urine? You know, Noah had a job on his hands with uh, dealing with all the animal mess that came along. And so just the, the logistics of what is going on here really do start to expand. I mean, to, to gather in all these animals, to find caging for them on the Ark, and then to care for them for the 150 days, is just an absolutely mind-blowing task. Now, I think there is an explanation around the animals that, that helps make all that a little bit more feasible, but that kind of links into the next part of the story. So we'll carry on and, and circle back to that. But this is a huge, huge task. It must have just seemed mind-blowing to Noah, but God uh, is with him and enables him to complete this task and get the job done. And so eventually... Noah builds this ark with the help of his three sons. He brings all of the animals on board, and then the great flood arrives. And we read this in chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, so he's already 600 by this time. He's not, he's not a young man. Uh, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And so notice that the water is coming from two directions here. It's coming from under the earth. It's coming from below ground. These springs 
burst forth. These, these subterranean springs just burst forth. And so perhaps like in the movie, these geysers or fountains uh, releasing water. So that would have created extensive flooding. And then the rains fall, and, and it says the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And if you were here last year in our series in Genesis, you might remember when God created the sky. And there was that understanding in the ancient world that the sky is a solid dome with the water above it. It held back the waters. And so when it rained, it was like the gates being opened, the gates of the great dome being opened to release the waters. And that's the same understanding that's reflected here. The floodgates of heaven were opened. God opened the gates and the rains fell upon the earth. So you've got water coming in two directions and the flood continues, the water continues coming for 40 days and 40 nights. Sometimes we think the 40 days and the 40 nights was how long Noah's ark was at sea. But this is just the length of time that it was raining. This is just the time that the, the waters are continuing to pour forth. The flood then goes on for another 150 days that the boat is at sea. So it's a lot longer than often we, we picture. But the flooding continued 40 days and 40 nights. And then we read the extent of this flood down in verse 18, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits, which is around about seven meters. Now, one of the questions that, that arises in, in this passage is, how extensive was this flood? You know, if we believe there was literally a flood in the ancient world that happened, uh, how big was it really? And there's a couple of different views on this. Okay, I just want to uh, explain them to you. You can decide that, that people you know, take both points of view and both of them are biblical points of view. The first is that this was truly and literally a global flood in the sense that the waters literally covered the entire surface of the globe, every continent, every mountain, Every square inch of the earth was covered with water up to the height of the highest mountains and then beyond that seven meters so that the entire surface of the entire planet was covered in water, a global flood. Many, many people believe that, many Christians believe that, and that is obviously a very reasonable interpretation of this passage. The other view, however, is that perhaps this was a more regional flood and that when the author talks about the floodwaters rising upon the earth, he may be talking about the known earth at the time. But when he talks about the waters rising to the highest mountains, he might be talking about the known mountains that, that human beings knew of at the time. That when he talks about all things on the land being wiped out, it might be the known land at the time. Because remember, the human race at the time only occupied a fairly small part of the world. Uh, it was still into the millions but they were still largely confined around that Mediterranean kind of area, perhaps a little bit more broadly than that, but they still occupied a fairly small part of the globe. So human beings simply didn't know uh, how big the earth was. They didn't know how, how far it went, how expansive everything was. They knew the world that they knew. They, and the earth for them, the world for them, the land for them was the land that they knew, the land they occupied, the land they inhabited, the land they lived in. And so it may be that if this is written from the author's perspective, which it is, that he's simply talking about a flood that covered that known world at the time. And it may not have literally covered the entire world. It may not literally have covered China, for example, but it may have covered the earth that was known and inhabited at the time. Now, I know some people feel a little bit uncomfortable with that because they feel like, well, 
It does sound like this was a global flood, though. The way the Bible talks about it, it sounds like it really did cover the earth, the whole earth, and all the mountains under heaven, it says. And that's true. That's certainly the way that this text reads, if you just read it as a straightforward reading of the Bible. It's worth remembering, though, coming back to that earlier point, that the author is writing for a specific purpose and with a specific reason in mind, to reveal and to show the purposes of God. And it may be that in order to do that, he's using a little bit of a literary technique called hyperbole. And that means using exaggerated language or extreme language to describe something that's a little bit more specific. Now, I know that makes some people uncomfortable because you think, well, hang on, does that mean the Bible's not true? Does that mean the Bible's exaggerating its claims? Uh, What it simply means is that through many parts of Scripture, Uh, there are times when the biblical authors will use language that's universal when they're describing something that's particular. In fact, Jesus himself does this. You think of Jesus saying, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, did he literally mean that that's how easy it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because if so, it's impossible, obviously. And he'd therefore be saying that it's absolutely impossible for a rich person to be a Christian, if that's literally how easy it is. It's absolutely impossible. Well, no, I mean, I think everybody accepts Jesus is using hyperbole in that example, and he's using extreme language in order to make a point, which is that it's difficult for a person who has a lot of riches to enter the kingdom of heaven, because they can be preoccupied and distracted and weighed down by those riches. So he's using extreme language to make a specific point. And it may be, not saying this is definitely the case, but it may be that back in Genesis 6 and 7 and following, the author is doing the same kind of thing, using universal language, using more extreme language, using hyperbole in order to describe a flood that may have been more localized, more regional in nature. So all I'm saying is both views are possible. And you can decide which side of the fence you sit on with that one. You may be the global flood person. You say, no, I really believe this was universal, global, literal, covered the whole earth flood. That's absolutely fine. You may be the more local flood person, and and that's fine. The point is, and what we need to, I think, be able to agree on is there was a flood, and it was catastrophic. It really happened. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. There was a real flood, and it wiped out humanity. That's the point. The emphasis is not so much exactly how many square inches it covered. The point is it wiped out the human race, except for Noah and his family. It wiped out the human race. And that's the theological emphasis that's going on. So on those, those points are important. On the details of whether it's global, whether it's regional, you can figure that out, have a look at the Bible, have a look at some of those other passages, and draw your own conclusions. So that then takes us to about the end of chapter 7, which is where we'll leave the story itself today, and we'll pick that up again next week. But I want to just draw this together and just make a couple of comments on the broad themes that are going on in the story so far. As you step back from the story, there's a couple of big themes that are coming out of this story. One is around the judgment of God. And that's important. You know, it's important to recognize the flood is an act of God's judgment upon sin. That, that's maybe not comfortable to think about, but that, that's the reality. This, this flood is very tied to the wickedness of humanity on the earth, the sinfulness of humanity on the earth. It's not just a natural occurrence. This is a flood that God sent in response to human sinfulness, and it is an act of His judgment. And I think as you look at that and you step back from that, it should remind us that God takes 
sin seriously, that he is a judge, and he deals with sin severely. It's not something that he looks the other way at. It's not, sin is not something God's unconcerned with. It's not something he thinks, oh, you know, let's just gloss over that or let's just pretend that's not really an issue. Sin is something that God treats incredibly seriously and the flood gives us a picture of the severity of the judgment of God against human sin. It's a very sobering picture. But at the same time, in the midst of all that, the second great theme that comes through is the mercy of God. That in the midst of this picture of judgment, you have mercy. I mean, Noah was a sinful man, just like everybody else. His family was, was fallen, sinful people. And yet God looked upon them with favor. He chose them. He spared them. He rescued them. They didn't deserve that. It's not because of some good merit they had. It's because of the mercy of God that he preserved them through the flood. And he brought them through and set them safely upon dry ground. So there in the midst of judgment, you have mercy. You have the incredible kindness of God who doesn't destroy all human life, but he preserves humanity. And then he starts anew. And you get to next week and we'll look at this where it's like new creation. It's like the world beginning again and humanity beginning again and going forth and repopulating the earth. And God gives humanity this new start. There is mercy in the midst of the judgment of God. So you have these two themes, judgment and mercy. And those themes keep on winding their way through the story of the Bible. Judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy, all the way through the story of the Old Testament, all the way to the cross. And there you see the ultimate picture of both the judgment and the mercy of God. And you see that picture at the cross of the ultimate judgment of God upon sin. I mean, the, the flood in some ways was just a fraction of God's judgment that was poured out upon sin at the cross. You think the flood was bad. You think that was devastating. Think about what happened at the cross where God unleashes the full flood of his wrath, the full flood of his righteous anger against sin. He unleashes that at the cross. That is the biggest picture in the scriptures of the judgment of God. And yet, at the same time, you see the mercy of God on the cross, that his judgment is unleashed not on us who deserve it, but on the Son of God upon Jesus, that he bears the full brunt of God's judgment for us so that we can be saved, we can be rescued, we can be delivered. And so the cross for us becomes like Noah's ark, another wooden structure that becomes an instrument of salvation. And just as through the ark, God saved Noah and his family, God says to us, you cling to the cross now. You come to me, you cling to the cross of Christ, and I will carry you through. The cross will carry us through the storm of God's judgment. It's not that God's judgment doesn't happen, it does, but the cross protects us. The cross shields us. Jesus shields us from the judgment of God because he takes it on himself. He protects us like the ark. We cling to the cross and we come through the flood, through the storm of God's judgment and safely out the other side where God sets us in a spacious place of forgiveness and blessing and life and freedom and reconciliation with God. And so in a strange kind of way, the story of the flood preaches the gospel. It shows us our sin. It shows us the judgment of God, the severity of God's judgment, but it shows us salvation. It points us to deliverance and it points us to the ultimate salvation that was yet to come 
and has now come in Jesus Christ, who has saved us fully and completely and thoroughly. And so I just hope that the story doesn't stay for you just one of those childhood stories. I hope that it doesn't just get relegated to Sunday school. And that story you heard a long, long time ago that doesn't have any impact for your life today, I hope that you can rediscover afresh the power of this story, the meaning of this story, and the, and the incredible picture that it gives you of who God is, that He's a God of, of judgment. He is the judge, and He deals with sin severely, but He is also a God of unbelievable mercy, and He has shown that mercy to us on the cross, and He continues to show it to us every single day. Let that story, that old story of Noah's Ark, preach the gospel to you. Let it remind you of the goodness and the faithfulness and the love of God in your life. And we'll pick up the rest of the story next week and carry on. For now, let's pray. Father, we, we think about this old story, and many of us have, have heard it many times, and we're, we're almost numb to it, Lord. We're, we're numb to its, its power and its meaning. But God, we just pray that you'd speak afresh into our lives through the story, through your servant Noah, through this incredible flood that came upon the earth. Father, we pray that it would remind us that you are a holy and a righteous God, that you don't look the other way at sin. And Father, it, just, it leads us to that realization of just how broken we are, just how sinful we are. God, we, we are like all those people in Noah's day. Lord, we, we deserve to be washed away. We deserve to be washed away by the flood. We, we, we really deserve nothing more than your judgment. And yet, God, to think that we would be able to receive your mercy, that we would receive your love, and that you would save us like you saved Noah and his family. Father, it's just such a humbling thing. And we thank you. It's not because of anything in us. It's not because of any merit, any deserving, any entitlement. It's purely because of your grace. I pray that, Lord, this story would speak to us and make us more grateful than ever before of your love and your grace that has been poured out in our lives. Let us never take that for granted. Let us never become kind of just cavalier about your love. We thank you that it was, it was costly. It was a sacrifice. But we are the beneficiaries, and we're so deeply grateful. So we thank you, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your ongoing grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.